Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where books and writing topics are center stage and where authors give voice to the written words. I'm Landis Wade, and on behalf of my co-host, Hannah LaRue and Sarah Archer, we thank you for listening. The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Before we get to my interview with Jerome Preisler today, which I think you're really going to enjoy, just want to let you know that uh, today is release day for Death by Podcasting. This is a novella that uh, Sarah Archer and I wrote. Uh, it's available in uh, print, uh, ebook, and audiobook. Uh, it's a uh, it's a quick read, but uh, it's a uh, it's interesting. If you've ever been on a podcast, you ever put together a podcast, you just like listening to podcasts. Uh, we decided we'd write a story about two podcasters who learned that one of their three upcoming author guests plans to kill them, but they don't know who or why. This is an interesting experience to uh, plot and plan, blend writing styles, and edit one another's work. And Sarah and I had fun seeing this final story come together. We hope you will like it too. Uh, please go ahead and get it. Uh, you know, for the whopping ebook price of two dollars and ninety nine cents, you can help support the podcast. Uh, it's only uh, I think nine ninety nine in print, uh, probably less than that uh, in the audiobook. So check all that out uh, and uh, have some fun with Death by Podcasting. And by the way. Uh, None of our real-life podcast guests are believed to be murderers, so Sarah and I plan to continue this thing called podcasting, as dangerous as it may be. And now let's get to the interview. In this episode 365, we feature New York Times bestselling author Jerome Preisler in his nonfiction book Civil War Commando, a fine piece of writing about a little-known naval war hero in the Civil War named William Barker Cushing, a man who defied all odds to pull off a stunning defeat for the Confederacy. The book is fast-paced history about what led up to and how the Union sunk the Confederate ironclad Albemarle in a spectacular mission in 1864, helping re-elect Abraham Lincoln. Jerome, welcome to the show. Very happy to be here. Good That's morning. Great. Well, congratulations on this book, The uh, Civil War Commando. I really enjoyed reading it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. And before we talk about the book itself, um, I want to talk a little bit about your prolific writing. I can't believe it. You're uh, you New York Times bestselling author, over 40 books, both fiction and nonfiction, uh, eight novels in the Tom Clancy Power Play series. And you actually, you're, I think your publicist reached out to me about uh, your latest uh, in that series. We'll mention that in, in the show as well. It's Net Force Moving Target. But you also write nonfiction. I was intrigued when she told me about Civil War Commando because I had never heard much about Naval War <laughs> history in the Civil War. And so, uh, and you're also a frequent speaker on military topics at schools, uh, museums, and bases around the country. And I was wondering uh, if you could talk just a little bit about how these two worlds of fictional thrillers and nonfiction military stories fit together and what draws you to them. Well, it, what it actually happened was I had not written nonfiction until uh, 2000, around 2008 when I was asked to do a book called All Hands Down. And um, I, I, well, I had done a few bits and pieces, but nothing book length. And All Hands Down was about the disappearance of a submarine, uh, the USS Scorpion, in um, the, the late 60s. And I was working with a former submariner who'd had a lot of uh, information about what happened. And uh, 
I guess the reason they asked me was because I had done the Tom Clancy series before mm-hmm. that. So they uh, thought I could at least handle the narrative portion of it. And the, and, and the, my co-author would, would be providing the facts. What ended up happening was much more of a collaboration because um, he ended up going to Iraq for you know, on some top secret mission um, midway through writing the book and uh, we had very limited communication but at the same time that that wasn't that wasn't necessarily a bad thing because it forced me to do a lot of research that I'd already been prepared to do writing the Tom Clancy novels and um, so I, 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 I had the research techniques down and that ended up being um, my first nonfiction, and that one thing just led to another after that. So, um, and I found that I could that I, I could apply the very same techniques I use writing novels to telling a, a, a nonfiction story because ultimately, what I what I realized is that a, telling a story is the same. If you're sitting down, you know, at a table or at a bar or at a fire. Uh, place and telling a story, whether it ha- it's something that happened to you or, your, or someone in your family generations back, or somebody you're just cooking up a, a, a story to scare the kids, you still are using the same techniques. You're still ramping up suspense and all of that. So ultimately, it becomes the the, the actual method of it becomes very very similar. Mm. Anything about the, uh, I mean, I know that, that thrillers have a lot of a military aspect to them, at least some of them do, um, but is there something else about uh, your interest, your past, your curiosity that uh, has gotten you interested in writing about these uh, uh, milita- these military stories? I think, uh, I, I always had a, a, a particular interest at, in World War II for, mm-hmm. for, for reasons of um, um, experiences my own family had. And so I was always... Um, drawn toward it. I have no personal military experience. Mm-hmm. And then um, when I started writing the, the Tom Clancy books, I came to know a lot of military people and lean on them for, for vetting and for source material. Also around that same time, I partially relocated to um, a town in Maine that's very well known for its shipbuilding. And the the neighboring town had, at that time, um, a very large naval base, about 30,000 people between service service people and family members. And um, the, per, the individual I bought my house from was Navy. So we got mm-hmm. to be very close and I started get I started to get to know all of th- these different people and I started to get to know meet pilots and I had different mm-hmm. levels of access. So as that happens, you in, you inevitably you get more and more interested and your mind starts going in those directions. Yeah, the mystery, author, the mystery authors I interview, they're friends with like uh, detectives and prosecutors and policemen and that kind of thing. Yeah. So you you make friends with the people. I think C.J. Box is friends with the game wardens out the west and uh, Craig Johnson with the sheriffs and that kind of thing. So yeah, it's just nice to have that uh, collection. So do, do horror writers make friends with monsters? <laughs> <laughs> That's that's interesting. Well, look, let, let's. Uh, I want to circle back to some of the writing things at the end, but uh, let's talk about Civil War Commando. This is uh, William Cushing's raid to sink the invincible ironclad CSS Albemarle. What you know, with all the with the limitations on time that writers have, uh, because we can't just crank it out in a week. You know, uh, you have to be 
deliberate about the choices you make and what you're going to write about. What inspired you? Sort of, how did you come across this story about this this uh, Civil War hero, and what inspired you to write it? Well, you said something very interesting at, at the outset of this, which is uh, you didn't know there was that much naval action in right. the Civil War. No one did, including myself. <laughs> and then I had just finished a book, uh, a nonfiction um, called First to Jump, which was about the um, uh, uh, U.S. pathfinders who, who were the first pe- men to jump uh, into Normandy and elsewhere elsewhere during World War II. So the editor, uh, my editor, had asked me to start looking around for another project. And I, I'd written about um, I'd, I'd written about uh, submarine action. Uh, before that, I'd written about um, uh, um, airborne action, and I was looking for something a little bit different. And I also thought it would be fun to, to sort of switch eras and see, challenge myself and see, well, can I write? Can I actually write something about the Civil War? Because the far, the further back you get, the more things change. So when you're describing, say, someone taking a train ride, that train ride becomes more and more different than your your experience on a train as you go further back in time, and you can extrapolate from that. Anyway, so I started looking, and and one of my techniques is just to almost just free form on the freestyle on the internet and I just start typing in names naval action civil war this and that I came across Will's story and what a mate it the story itself was was like it's 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 almost cliche to say it but it it, it was like a movie it was this can't be real and well it's too, it's too good it's, it's like if you wrote this as a thriller nobody would believe nobody would right? believe it and 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 then um <laughs> the next thing I did was start looking for uh, to see whether any other books had been written about it, and there had been a few, but not recently, and not in a in a kind of exciting narrative style. So it was just as a writer, it's like something like that falls onto your lap, you you run with it. So I I, I that was it. I wrote the proposal. It didn't end up going with this with that particular editor. It ended up going um, with another publisher. But that was the uh, the genesis of it. Yeah. Well, let, let's talk a little bit about uh, two things, the setting and the man himself, starting first with the setting. And when I talk about setting here, I'm talking about, uh, you know, well, we know the time period, we're in the Civil War, but uh, it's Annapolis. Uh, uh, this is where all the young men were going to learn how to be uh, naval officers, uh, but they were coming from all parts of what, what was then the, the country, uh, the United States of America. And then suddenly war breaks out. Can you talk a little bit about uh, that setting and what happened when the war did break out in Annapolis? Actually, you can even go a little bit further back into the Mm. six months or so or even year Mm. before the war when tensions were spreading throughout the United States. And as you got closer to the outbreak of the Civil War, it was evident it was going to happen. The question was more about when and how many states would would secede uh, rather than is there is the, is this going to happen so here you are as you point out at Annapolis where you've got this mix of young men from all around the United States and they've they're experiencing internally and ultimately externally mm-hmm. the very same f- uh, pressures and and fissures that are s- spreading throughout the United States their their family they've they've come from states in in the north and south um, their families are um, have very di- di- divergent views um, as to the 
the political situation. And, but they're friends. And they're right? friends. Yeah. They're, 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 they're <laughs> friends. They're roommates. They're right. eating together. They're training together. Yeah. They're blood brothers. So, yeah. so the, the, the mood there is, is extremely, um, it's tense and it's sad um, all of, because all of these men ultimately are bec- becoming aware of the fact that they may have to be fighting and potentially killing one another. And there's actually a scene in the book uh, early on when um, s- different, um, different students begin to leave Annapolis and go home mm-hmm. to the southern states and there's one particular guy who was at, at the top of the class and he leaves and they hold this very formal procession through the ground, grounds of Annapolis where they're singing these uh, sea shanties and, and, and then ultimately somber songs and then um, I believe it's a bit it was a little while ago and I wrote it but I believe they end up smoking a peace pipe um, <laughs> because of you know it was popular culture at the time and um, it, and it, it was it was a very somber thing for them, and uh, mm-hmm. and it was tra- it was traumatizing for this little group. It was a microcosm of what was happening around the country. So, um, yeah, that that was that's that's the backdrop yeah. to all this. So, so as we mentioned earlier, we think of uh, with all the books that's been written and all the PBS specials and everything else, we think of Civil War battlefields as a. You know, Grant and Lee and up and down and all the different uh, battlefields, not not the open water. Let's talk a little bit about the setting here for where these men find themselves and the importance of what was going on up and down the East Coast uh, during the Civil War. Well, of course, Annapolis, in, on one way, in, on one hand, was was a gateway to Washington D.C. Um, and and directly accessible accessible along uh, uh, the Potomac River. Um, so that's that's one thing, but broadening this out uh, through through some of the states like uh, uh, Virginia, North Carolina, where I believe you are, and mm-hmm. um, and uh, that whole um, Albemarle Sound, Roanoke area, um, these were important waterways for both the Confederacy and the Union. These were um, major shipping lanes. These were the, this was how the South. Uh, uh, did it, did its commerce and ultimately uh, military supply and resupply. Um, it was essential for the North in, uh, in order to m- make their landings and and supply the troops who were, who were on the ground using using the rivers and 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 these and all the winding coastal mm-hmm. waterways that were very very familiar to people who had grown up along that area, but that were unfamiliar to many of the northern um, troops that were there. So, yeah. yeah. And, and I've been up and down that coast because uh, we, we've been to the beach there many years, and I've been out fishing out frying pan shoals at uh, Cape Fear River, the intersection there, and you have a little scene in the book, so it was interesting to... I mean, I know how treacherous that water is, and so what they were battling was not just the enemy, but the, but the elements as well yeah. throughout uh, what they were doing. But let's talk about the man himself for a second, William Cushing. He got off to uh, kind of a rough start. He's not the guy that uh, anyone above him thought would ever make it uh, as an officer or lead men into battle. He just uh, he didn't like following directions. And yet, uh, was he exactly the kind of guy that was the kind of guy that would pull something like Ex- this off? Exactly. I, 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 one of the th- there, uh, I'd written about another uh, individual um, in, in the World War II 
a book uh, first to jump and although separated by almost a hundred years they were very similar these the these some of these men who um, end up participating or leading um, these these crazy escapades have a certain um, have certain personality traits in common and a lot of that has to do with their inability to take orders from anyone <laughs> <laughs> um, their their total disdain for um, anyone who they perceive as not being uh, a, a combat someone who's been involved right. in combat, um, and that was that was Will. Will was like that as a young man, however, you know. And and um, I'm going to read a segment of the book that that speaks to that. But um, mm. he was booted out of Annapolis twice, um, not because he was he was very intelligent but he was just a poor student he didn't show up to his classes if he didn't respect the teacher he would ridicule the teacher in front of the entire class which is not really great at the naval academy and yeah, um, yeah this would be a good time uh, then maybe uh, we'll just go ahead and drop that reading in because uh, I've got more questions but uh, if that's where your reading is about let's uh, you can tee it up and tell us about it and then read it for us well um, this Actually, this segment goes back to when Will was five or six years old, okay, and good. and it really um, speaks to um, the personality that he had from childhood. And just to frame it a bit, um, his family had moved around quite a bit. His father had a lot of financial troubles in it, and had moved from his hometown of in uh, uh, western New York all the way across to um, um, Wisconsin, and then from there um, the family ends up in a rooming house in Chicago and Will's father leaves home and is never seen again by the family. This takes place shortly after his father's abandoned the family and um, the only thing he's left behind is his um, top hat. And um, so, Dr. Cushing, that was how father introduced himself to others tall, dignified, and handsome. He was a man of proper bearing and authority. Respected by everyone, he always wore the finest clothing, like the honored gentleman who would assemble on the waterfront to christen new ships before they set sail or cut ribbons for the buildings going up, going up one after another along the Great Lake's muddy banks. Willett noticed that those men also wore top hats. He carried the hat downstairs with him, his short legs taking the steps awkwardly, one hand on the rail. Had he worn the hat on the stairs, it would have slipped down over his eyes to blind him, and he might have tripped and fallen. Walking out the front door, he shuffled down to the street and turned toward the bustling harbor, drawn to the piers and expansive water beyond. Around him, husky dock workers milled around horse-drawn carts, loaded with timber, coal, grain, and other crated and barreled freight. Bare-chested and sunburned, the men shouted at each other in loud, barking tones as they hoisted the weighty containers from their shoulders onto the flatbed wagons. Their gruff voices sounded like those he heard through the walls of the rooming house, and some indeed may have been its tenants. Undistracted by the commotion, the boy walked toward the busy quay. The harbor was crowded with barges, tugs, and full-rigged merchant ships, their steam whistles blowing and their paddles churning in the water. Some might have wondered what he was doing out there alone, but his calm determination may have led people to assume an adult was nearby. A child who strayed from his parents' side usually panicked or showed some sign of distress. Will did not appear lost or frightened. 
Instead, he looked determined as he shuffled out onto the pier, his eyes fixed on a steamboat pulling away over the water. He did not know where the ship was going any more than he'd consciously known his destination when sneaking out of the house. He only understood that the boat was on a voyage to some faraway place. Its smokestack chuffing subtly into the breeze, the vessel moved toward the harbor entrance, tossing up a long, white wake of foam that ran back to its vacated berth like a twisted rope. Will gazed after it, mesmerized, his father's top hat wobbling on his head. He'd put it on as he stepped out onto the pier, holding its brim so it would not slip over his eyes. He could see everything well in front of him. The steamboat, the water, they went and they went and they went, and they also seemed to be calling for him to go with them. On impulse, Will hurried to catch up to the ship, moving forward with a herky-jerky toddler's trot. He wanted to reach the boat before it pulled out of sight, reach it and climb on board. By then he was standing at the edge of the dock, Water splashing at the piles beneath his feet, he stared wistfully out at the departed steamboat. Someone began shouting behind him, but he paid no attention. In a minute, the boat would be gone, vanished, leaving him behind. Will made up his mind. Without a flinch of hesitation, ignoring the alarmed shouts, he leaped past the end of the wharf into the emptiness above the water and plunged into the deep, cold currents of Lake Michigan. It would not be the last time he instinctively and impulsively risked his life answering adventurous call. Yeah, you know, I, I read that, of course, and then I read the book, and now as I listen to it again, I can see what's going on in the climactic scene. There was Will. <laughs> <laughs> there was There was, there was the, the, the template for Will, for, yeah. for slightly older Will. And we also should bear in mind that he was in his 20s at, at when he conducted yeah. this, this great mission. Um, he was, I, I think he was 25 or 27, um, yeah. but he was a very young man even then. For all things Charlotte Meters Podcast, check out charlottemeterspodcast.com. You can find a list of all episodes, an alphabetical guest list with links, detailed show notes for each episode, a community blog, and more. We'd love to have you visit. Well, let's talk about the David Goliath aspect of this thing, because uh, I remember, I don't know why I remember, but I remember the battles of the Merrimack and the Monitor, the two ironclads. That's what I remember. I don't remember the CSS Albemarle. And, and you know, this was, a, this was a ship of mammoth proportions that took a lot of money to build and a lot of steel. Um, it, it was an odd-looking <laughs> creature in the water. Uh, but talk about its importance to the South uh, and what it was actually like well one thing that i think it's for people um in our time to keep in mind was that this was at a time when um naval warfare was transitioning between wooden ships and um ironclads and or iron ships before this there were no there were no metal uh battleships so now suddenly there's this technological advance which actually began in in europe um, where they began building ironclads and then was and then spread across the the uh, the, the Atlantic into the United States, and this was this was a kind of arms naval arms race between the North and South. Who was going to perfect these ironclads? Um, as you point out, the um, the Merrimack was a um, was a um, a far more a far cruder version of of an ironclad than the uh, Albemarle, which was. Um, 
the, the monster of the Roanoke. It was uh, 300 feet from beginning, from, from front to bow to stern. Um, it was armed with cannon and all sorts of armaments. Um, it was essentially uh, invulnerable to um, uh, wooden ship warfare, for lack of a better term. And so they had no way of, the, the, the North had no way of um, sinking it, and they needed to because it was blocking the essential waterways that we discussed earlier um, that were um, indispensable for northern mo- mobility, resupply of troops, and southern commerce. So just, and we're not going to give away the climactic scene or anything because I think it's worth uh, reading how it happened and how it went down, but I want to set the stage a little bit because during this period of the war, uh, just talk about what the mission was, what they were trying to do, and also what Abraham Lincoln was facing at the time if he didn't get a good win. Lincoln had been, um, the, the uh, war, northern troops had gotten bogged down on several fronts. There was a lot of uh, public unrest. Um, there was a lot of political opposition at this point to Lincoln, or uh, who uh, certainly a, a great deal of conflict even within his party. People were unsure as to whether to continue the war. And um, Will and a, a small group of 13 men aboard uh, a, three picket boats, which were just short wooden rowboats, went up went on this mission to sink this mighty ironclad that had already defeated much, much larger warships. In fact, it, it, its way of, of conducting naval warfare was to plunge right into the wooden ships and splinter them apart. It would br- literally break them in half and they would sink. So here, the only way to get to it was launching a, a commando-style mission. Of a, of a nature that had never been conducted before. And, of course, it comes down to um, crazy Will Cushing, because who else is going to lead this mission? And that is what happened. And um, It's almost like these, uh, you write these thrillers, it's almost like a Navy SEAL group or some small contingent of another branch of the military is going to go in under trying circumstances with lots of odds against them and it's just uh, the president's ordered them and a lot of people think well they may not come out but it's got to be done they didn't think will cushing could do this did they no they they really thought it was a death mission and uh, a suicide mission and um, they the navy had come up with several plans um, and uh, some of them were were probably uh, uh, a bit less daring um, and playing it a little bit safer and will came came through with uh, the plan that, that was ultimately implemented, and that was one that, as you say, they thought was never going to succeed. But they figured, um, I guess they thought, well, he's 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 just crazy enough to maybe pull it off, <laughs> and if he doesn't, he's probably ex- he's probably crazy enough to be expendable. So yeah, exactly. Well, it, it, they talk about uh, in the promotion, this is America's greatest little remembered Civil War hero, and uh, listeners, we hope we've piqued your curiosity enough to go out and read this book. It does read. Uh, like a thriller, and in that regard, I want to ask a few writing life questions because we had uh, Fry Galliard on the show. He's an American historian. He wrote uh, uh, A Hard Rain, uh, Life in the 60s, and what he said was when I asked him a question about writing you know, nonfiction, he said, Tom Wolfe, who wrote books like The Right Stuff, said that all the possibilities that are open to the novelist or the poet are also open to the writer of nonfiction. You can develop character. You can deal in extended dialogue. You can develop a plot. You can explore a theme. 
whatever it is that the fine novelist is doing, if you're working in these realms of nonfiction, that's available to you. I think that's essentially what you were saying earlier. Yeah, right? that's really a wonderful quote because that that yeah. that that um, encapsulates it in a in a far more articulate manner than I did. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah, but you're but you're using and speaking of dialogue, um, how do you do that when obviously you weren't there and there's not many sources on those three picket boats as they're going up the. You have to use a little bit of your imagination to fill in the gaps, right? Uh, not really. That's really? everyone has their own methods, and and one okay. of the um, kind of c- conditions I put on myself is that if there's no, um, if if I don't have a source for dialogue, I don't use it. Hmm. Here's here's the rub on it. Um, th- I might find a newspaper account written by um, a, a reporter who accompanied accompanied Will on on a on a given mission, and wrote. Uh, Will shouted to his men, um, "We all need to, you. All need to abandon ship." At that point, I can turn that into dialogue and write in quotes, "Abandon ship," or "Abandon mm-hmm. shipmen." So because it's there, and, right. and, and but if there's no actual reference for it, I won't put it in. And I can do that, and and it's less restrictive than you might think because. Uh, often, there, if, if people are right, ha, have memoirs, there's internal dialogue. So Will might think, I told them to run as fast as they can. And then you can then write, run as fast as you can. So that's that's my own condition. But I'll never put a word in that's not there. Um, and and that's that's just my, my that's, thing. That's great. Yeah, that's, that's great. And, and I remember from the book now that he was... Uh, he he was a little bit vain too. He liked to have his name in print, and there was some. He would have people follow them around on these missions who would write these stories for the Times or whoever. They would sort of glamorize what was going on. And I think you even said in your uh, at the end and the afterward that you had to take that into account because some of those accounts were probably a little over glamorized. Well, you know what's interesting is it, throughout that war, there were just as you have now, where you have. Uh, a, a journalist might be embedded with troops. That was what was happening. So you would have mm. a reporter from the New York Times or whatever newspaper right. with the troops. And and t- to your point, that was actually useful because they would stick to the facts, whereas Will might write a letter home to his mom or to uh, his cousin. Yeah. And that's where he would <laughs> embellish. <laughs> so you could then compare the two and you could find the truth between them. And then a third really interesting source then would be um, uh, military documents because everything, of course, is is written about in in uh, post action reports. So w- mm-hmm. if you can access them, you have yet another source of information. So there are three or four streams of information that you can get for one given incident, which is really mm-hmm. great when you're thinking when you think you're writing about something yeah. that's uh, occurred uh, in 1860, 1865. Yeah, is is your approach to research uh, uh, different or the same when you're writing thrillers versus nonfiction? Because I think someone said, you know, fiction's got to be more true than nonfiction for people to to buy into. Yeah, it. and and that's that's a great point. And my my research is identical. Um, hmm. the, the 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 fiction has to be the, the facts in the fiction have to be accurate and the facts and the nonfiction obviously have to be accurate so it's the same process and that's uh, circling back to the uh, beginning of our conversation I think that's why I was able to segue from heavily researched fiction 
to nonfiction so easily because I'd already perfected those research techniques. They were they were indispensable to the kind of stuff I was writing when I was in, in writing novels, and that became of and and to this day is. Uh, one of my greatest strengths and my most important skill sets, but I, I didn't—I wasn't born with it. This was stuff that I, I developed yeah, over yeah. time. That's cool. Well, that's kind of a good foundation for uh, this question. Tell us a little bit about something true related to net force moving target uh, from your research that uh, you fit into that uh, to that novel. Um, I set a lot of the novel the novel in the catacombs of Paris. And um, there, I think the, the catacombs that are accessible to uh, locals and tourists, uh, I think that the, the uh, size of the catacombs, of the segment of the catacombs, is about two and a half miles. What people don't realize is that there are 200 miles of tunnels. And, really? uh, yeah, beneath, and, and, and a lot of them have, were, were explored in previous centuries and just not marked off. And some of them remain unexplored. And um, so starting to do the research on what, looking back at 17th century documents about the exploration of of the the sections of the catacombs that nobody knows about, um, really became important to that book. And what was going to be the first 30 pages became most of of its uh, (laughs) 360 pages. And that's under Montmartre, right? Up in the, uh, or at least one area that you went into the catacombs was under the, the little hill there that Montmartre sits on. Yeah, and, and that's and that's only a small section. That's actually where, where mm. one of the climactic scenes takes place. Okay. I won't tell you what it is, but that's... That's, <laughs> that's good. Well, um, as we wrap up here, this is one question we usually ask our authors, and you've been writing uh a long time got a lot of books out there uh, if you could tell your younger writing self uh, something of value that had you known it when you first got started uh, based on things you've learned since then uh, can you narrow that down to something that would be helpful to the younger Jerome um never take for granted that you will have a writing career it's difficult and only a small percentage of people succeed in it and so if given an opportunity, never squander it. Take every opportunity seriously. Never think too too much of yourself, um, and always understand that what may seem a small opportunity that a young cocky person might think, oh, I don't know about this one. Um, right. Don't take it for granted. Um, that's that's the number one thing. And the other thing I would say is, uh, stay disciplined write as much as you can on a regular basis but write on a regular basis yeah you've heard it here uh, aspiring writers that uh, say yes to the opportunities uh, you never know where they'll lead and uh, and stay after it right stay disciplined and uh, and write what you love to write yeah and 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 one thing that I've found in my in my life and career interestingly is that I can find things to love about in, in genres and about and writing on subjects that I might not initially think I would. Um, and so, if you can be, it's another tip is if you can be light on your feet and versatile. Then remember that Jerome said that genre is less important than character story and 
the quality of the writing. Yeah, I agree. It's you can be forgiven sometimes for a poor plot, but not for not not for going deep with uh, interesting characters. Yeah, yeah. yeah. P- people going to remember the characters more than they remember the plot, right? Yeah, yeah. And sometimes even more than the actual genre. I mean, they'll know. Obviously, you know know if there was a mystery. But people start just thinking about the story. They don't think Lord of the Rings was fantasy when they think about Lord of the Rings. They think about Frodo and and, and his journey. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Well, look, we could do it all day, but this is great. Um, I know that, uh, you know, a lot of men read more nonfiction than fiction. Uh, I'm going to go back, obviously, and pick up some of your other books because you write this book... uh, uh, with a fast pace to it, but you learn a lot as well. So uh, all you guys out there that say you don't uh, read uh, fiction, uh, tune in to Jerome's nonfiction work because uh, you're going to get a fiction-like story, but there's going to be some truth to it. You know? Thank you. <laughs> so, Jerome, I want to thank you for uh, being on Charlotte Rear's podcast. It's been my great pleasure. I had a great time. <laughs>